This is Dylan Wiseman with the Buckhalter Trade Secrets and Employee Mobility Podcast. I'm here today with my shareholder colleague, Josh Robbins. Josh, how are you? Doing all right, Dylan. How are you? Good, good. So uh, Josh is uh, has got a really interesting practice. His practice is white-collar uh, criminal defense work. And um, he comes to us via the U.S. Attorney's Office. So, Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and your practice? Sure. I, I started off practicing on the East Coast, actually, a law firm in Washington, D.C. And then I came out west here to L.A. to the U.S. Attorney's Office back in 2009. Um, and I was there for a number of years, did mostly white-collar investigations and prosecutions. And then for uh, some period of time, I was what's called a chip, which is a computer hacking intellectual property crime, uh, AUSA. Wow. So my time on on those kinds of cases, uh, both uh, computer crime cases and IP crime cases. So today, what we're going to be talking about is the intersection of Josh's uh, white collar practice with the uh, practice that this podcast is all about, which is uh, trade secrets, prosecution, and defense work. And what we'd like to do is start out with kind of Josh describing the general overview of the statutory and regulatory scheme, and then talk about some uh, issues that come up in the prosecution and uh, the, the decisions that are made along the way, some of the pros and cons referring the case to criminal prosecution. And some of the complications that come across in these criminal and civil matters uh, that are very fascinating. Uh, and I think anyone who practices in this field is going to find to be really valuable. So, Josh, why don't we start out with you describing for us the uh, statutory scheme that governs a lot of the work that are, that's around the uh, trade secret protection? Sure. Well, in this case, this area of, of criminal law is actually pretty straightforward. There is one main statute that addresses criminal trade secrets violations. That's the Economic Espionage Act of 1996. Um, And there are two really main parts to that. There's 18 U.S.C. uh, Section 1831 and Section 1832. And those are pretty similar. Uh, One of them, though, 1831, involves theft of trade secrets uh, for the benefit of foreign governments. Um, And so that's uh, dealt with by different sections of the Justice Department and gets a kind of a different priority level. Um, but both of them share most of their elements in common. Um, there has to be a trade secret that was taken uh, and the definition's the same as the DTSA that I think most of the listeners here will be familiar with. Um, there are some differences in particular, one of the most important elements of a crime under either part of the Economic Espionage Act is that the the defendant has acted with the intent to convert the trade secret to the economic benefit of someone besides the owner. Could be themselves, could be a new company they work for, a different competitor. And the government has to prove that in order for somebody to be found guilty of a violation of this statute. That's a little bit different than the elements of the DTSA, and that's usually 
the key element that's the most difficult for the government to prove and that it's looking at and deciding whether to charge a case and uh, and how it's going to move forward in trying to prove the case. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the DTSA, the Defend Trade Secrets Act, which was enacted by Congress in 2016. And can you tell us, describe how it fits into the regulatory scheme, um, the statutory scheme under the Economic Espionage Act? Sure. I mean, for a number of years, right, there was there was a federal criminal uh, trade secret statute. That's the Economic Espionage Act. But there was no federal civil counterpart to that. As, as you know, um, the the civil uh, cases for trade secrets theft were brought under the, uh, various state statutes. Um, and so it was only more recently that you had a, a civil analog to the, the criminal statute. Um, where they fit together is in the sense that they both share some common elements. The, the definition of a trade secret is basically the same for both statutes. Um, and there are some aspects of them that are pretty similar to each other. So uh, if, if um, the, the misappropriation requirement for the DTSA uh, has a lot in common with, with parts of the uh, Economic Espionage Act, the kinds of conduct that there have to be uh, to violate it. So if you steal or take without authorization or obtain without authorization um, a something that's a trade secret from somebody, that is uh, one possible way to violate the Economic Espionage Act, which obviously has things in common with the definition of misappropriation in the DTSA. But there are some differences for the, the uh, criminal statute you don't have to have any showing of actual harm to anybody uh, for there to be a violation. There can be a conspiracy. There can be a, an attempt. There can be an actual taking of a trade secret uh, without any harm being done, and the government could still bring that as a criminal charge. It might affect whether the government's willing to, if there's been no actual harm, uh, but in theory, it can charge somebody criminally. So they're really separate statutes that have some common elements, and in in Almost every case of a civil violation of the defend uh, of the whether it's the DTSA or under a state statute, it's a possibility that the government could take it criminally. But as uh, you probably know, it's a it's a vast minority of the yeah, cases. I, I think there's there's a lot to be said for that. Where in all the years I've been doing this, I think I've had one case that was picked up by the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, where it doesn't seem that. Uh, Whatever the facts may be, the U.S. Attorney's Office doesn't typically get involved unless the trade secrets involve, I'd say, national security issues, uh, potentially some banking issues. And the only other way that they get involved, it seems, even uh, would be any type of uh, interstate pornography type situation, which never comes up in my field at all. So in all the years I've been doing this, it's been really uncommon for... Uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office, even if we make a referral to them, that they actually end up taking out the case. Have you had a similar type of experience, Josh? Yeah, I mean, both in and out of government. When you when you kind of realize the the resource limitations of the Justice Department and the FBI, who are the ones the agencies that handle this for the government, um, you sort of understand why that's the case. So, if you take, for example, the Central District of California, where where uh, I live. Uh, that covers a population of about 20 million people. And I think the stats were that over the past five years or so, um, 
There have been about 80 or so a year of uh, trade secrets cases, civil trade secrets cases brought in federal court. And then I, I couldn't say how many in state court, I'm, I'm sure more than that. So you assume maybe 200 civil cases every year brought in this district. There is only a handful of federal prosecutors uh, and FBI agents that focus on IP crimes and trade secrets are only one of those types of crimes. So they really have to pick their cases carefully and they, uh, the, they are not going to be involved in the vast majority of them. They're only going to be involved in cases uh, where there's really strong evidence that would meet the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt and where it, it meets certain priority areas of the Justice Department and that and the FBI and that U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, and otherwise, they're going to take the view that these are things that should be handled civilly, that the victims have the resources to take care of it that way. So there are certain factors to look at in deciding whether to take this criminally, uh, and, and they're only going to take the ones that are really the strongest candidates. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And so uh, as lawyers or businesses are considering trying to make a referral to uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office. Let's talk a little bit about the complications uh, for proceeding forward with both the civil civil and criminal proceedings at the same time. So, what are what are some of the concerns that come out right away in your mind? Yeah, and this really affects both the plaintiff side and the defendant side. Um, one of the issues, the biggest issue, I'd say, that complicates these parallel civil criminal proceedings is the Fifth Amendment, is the uh, right and ability and sometimes the need for those who are accused of being involved in what could be criminal activity to consider taking the Fifth Amendment and, and refusing to answer questions or provide documents on what's happened. Um, that's there's obviously an upside to that and that it protects them from having those statements used against them if there's going to be any criminal investigation. Uh, but the downside, the downside varies depending on what jurisdiction you're in. Um, but the downside is that it can obviously hamper your ability to uh, defend against a civil case. Now, if you're in federal court and uh, in, in I think uh, most parts of the country, um, the law is really that you can have adverse inferences drawn against you if you take the Fifth Amendment, which can be pretty deadly to a case. As it turns out, in some state courts, including here in California, that's not the case. Um, you take the Fifth in state court in California, they can't, that cannot be held against you. They can't even mention that uh, to a jury or let them take it into account. There's still a downside, which is that it prevents you, if you take the Fifth, from testifying at all about that subject matter in the case. And if that's important to your case, that could be a problem. But it's a lot, it's not nearly as bad as if you're in federal court and you get adverse inferences. And so um, that's one of the complications. It, it also um, gets a little more complicated when you have individuals who may have worked with the company and may be associated with the company, but are not the company that's being sued, uh, who take the fifth. Uh, there are some cases in which that even that can be held against the company, even though the company, which can't take the fifth, isn't. The individuals um, who are associated with it might, and some courts might actually hold that against the company when it comes to drawing adverse inferences. So there are a lot of ways in which that can play into the case. Often the, the response of a company that's facing a criminal investigation in a civil case is to try to get the civil case stayed. 
so that they can deal with one thing at a time. But judges don't always go along with that. And I've seen cases where uh, it isn't state and they're trying to handle the juggle both things at the same time. And that does get pretty tricky. Yeah, I can imagine how complicated that would get where you've got some of the defendants trying to invoke the fifth court, not recognizing that it should stay and then everything moving forward. And this is why I think it's really important to have somebody uh, like Josh with his skill set to be able to uh, help out and advise uh, civil practitioners in this field about this real considerable thicket that they can get themselves into um, that particularly on the defense side of the trade secrets claims. So let's also talk a little bit about um, some of the benefits that you've seen and some of the downsides in cooperating with the government as far as the trade secret misappropriation claims go. Sure. I mean, if you're talking about the, so the victim side here, the plaintiff side of the trade secrets fight, you know, a question that comes up a lot is, should we try to refer this to the criminal authorities uh, to see if they'd be interested um, and one thing you want to consider there is knowing what you know about the case and the government's priorities is this a good candidate that they might they might even be willing to consider it. Um, but assuming that it is and there might be interest, so there are pros and cons to it. And one of the pros, obviously, is that it's an enormous source of leverage uh, on the the defendant, on the defendant, the person who's being accused of taking the trade secrets. Um, the government has many more investigative tools, things like grand jury subpoenas and search warrants and email search warrants, where a typical civil litigant is just not going to be able to uncover facts. And of course, the government's bearing the cost of that so that uh, a civil defendant, if they can wait until after that's done, um, can can spare themselves a lot of the difficulty of pursuing a case. Um, and of course, if, if the concern is people leaving the company and stealing IP on the way out, uh, the fact of a government investigation can definitely deter that kind of conduct in the future. Uh, everyone kind of gets nervous about what will happen if I do something similar. But there are some cons to it as well. And one of them is that when you bring the government in, um, the government doesn't work for you. as the Even as the victim plaintiff, the government works for the government. And you don't have control over how they run the investigation, how quickly they run it, what they decide to do. Um, and they don't, even if you settle your claims, they don't go away uh, and simply stop doing what they're doing. Um, so you have to be prepared to give up that control and, and wait for a long time to see what they do. Uh, and it's also possible that the civil case will get stayed. And if it's important to you for that to go forward, you have to take that risk into account. Yeah, it's a lot of important variables to consider on these type of matters where you may have a case that's suitable for referral to the U.S. Attorney's Office. So, Josh, I really want to thank you for joining us today. And again, Josh is a shareholder in our Orange County office and has been working in this area for a long period of time. And I want to, on behalf of my colleagues, uh, the Buckhalter Trade Secrets and Employee Mobility Practice Group, I want to thank you for participating today. Thanks for having me, Dylan. It's great.